in uh, the 1500s, most of the people in the world for hundreds of years believed that the earth was the center of the universe. It was the center of the cosmos. And the sun and the moon and the planets, all six of them uh, back then, uh, all revolved around the earth. The earth was the center of the cosmos. But in 1534, a Polish-born mathematician and theologian actually did all the mathematical equations and he figured out that actually it was different. The sun and moon and the stars and planets did not revolve around the earth, but the earth revolved around the sun. And it was such a dramatic and different change of view. It was called in science the Copernican Revolution. His name was Nicholas Copernicus. And so that moment in history became known for him, the Copernican Revolution, that moment when we figured out that the galaxy doesn't revolve around the earth, but the, the earth revolves around the sun. Fast forward to about 50 years ago, there was a Swiss psychologist. His name was Jean Piaget. He wrote these words. At some point, every child must have their own Copernican revolution. When they come to an understanding that the world does not revolve around them. Think about it. When there was an infant at my house and she cried, we stopped whatever we were doing. You stop whatever you're doing if you're a decent parent and you go and you see if we need to change a diaper or we need to feed or we got a fever or whatever it may be. And in all reality, in the beginning, the world revolves around that child. But then they grow up a little bit. And sooner or later, if you're a good parent, and most of you really try hard to be, not beating anybody up, but we got to let our kids figure out that they're not the center of the world, that the world does not revolve around them. Now, here's the reality. We all know that, but there are a whole lot of people in our world who live differently. We live in the age of self, self-esteem, self-help, self-determination, self-image. Everything is about self. There's a magazine called Self, and we are, we are obsessed with self. We are, we are so consumed with our needs, our wants, that sometimes in our culture, we very seldom consider the needs of others. Now, this isn't a new problem. If it were a new problem, the Apostle Paul would not have had to address it in this short book of the New Testament, but he does. And he begins to talk to us about selfishness. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 in the Greek New Testament is one long run-on sentence. Thankfully, English translators of the Bible helped us out and they broke it up into a few more sentences so that it helps us kind of get a grasp on it. But if it's one long sentence, the main point, the subject verb of this passage is down in verse 3 where he says, do nothing out of selfishness and empty conceit. This is a passage in which the Apostle Paul wants to attack the human tendency toward selfishness. And that's what he's going to do in this passage of Scripture. Much of Philippians in chapter 1, Paul was very personal. He was writing about what God was doing in his life. And what God was doing in his life was he had him in a Roman jail. But Paul turned a corner and he begins to be more instructive to the church at Philippi. 
And apparently this was an issue. There was, we're going to find out a little later, there's a conflict in the church at Philippi. There are these two ladies in the church who have, uh, who have a conflict with one another. Their names are Euodia and Syntyche. Uh, not popular baby names these days, but, but that's the ladies' names. And, and they, they've got this conflict. Now, what we know is it wasn't a doctrinal conflict or Paul would have straightened it out. It wasn't about beliefs, but it was probably about preferences. And so Paul says, work it out. But he calls on them to lay aside any vestige of selfishness. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore... If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Do nothing out of selfishness. I really love the NIV translation of this. It says selfish ambition. I like that a lot. It's a good pointed way of of helping us understand this verse. And the King James Version says, do nothing out of vain conceit. That's also a really good translation. Paul is saying to us, stop believing that you are the center of the universe and all of life ought to revolve around you. I need to hear that. Church members need to hear that. All of us need to hear that. Maybe, maybe I don't know why I'm to this point in the book of Philippians. Maybe, the book, maybe you seniors need to hear that. I don't know. But here's what I do know. That all of us probably need a reminder of this somewhere along the way. So I'm going to divide this text into two sections, only two. I've got two points this morning. And I want to talk, first of all, about why you should do that. Why should you lay aside selfishness? And then we're going to talk about how for just a few minutes. So first of all, let's talk about the motives for abandoning a selfish life. Why should you abandon this self-centered pursuit in life? Well, let me give you three reasons First of all, because selfishness rules the world around us. Selfishness rules our culture and the world around us. The very first word of Philippians chapter 2 is the word therefore. Now, if you're a good Bible student, and some of you are, you know that there's kind of this rule in studying the Bible, that if you run across that word therefore, you're supposed to ask yourself a question. What is it therefore? That's exactly what you're supposed to do with that. And therefore, always refers to what has preceded it. Therefore is a word that says, looking back on what has been said, here's what you ought to do. He says, therefore, do not be selfish or conceited. Well, what's the therefore? What's the before that? Here's what he said in chapter 1, verse 27. I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon, but here's what he said. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, the gospel demands one kind of behavior from us, and the world demonstrates behavior that doesn't measure up to the gospel. And the gospel is all about doing for others. I mean, what Jesus did on the cross, he didn't do for himself. He did for others. 
He did not put himself in first place. He lowered himself and he took on the form of a bondservant. And he died the cruelest death that mankind had ever invented, death on a cross. And so what we look around us and we see this contrast between our life, which is supposed to be worthy of the gospel, and the life that we see lived by most people. And that life is characterized by being consumed with a personal agenda, short-sighted success, self-satisfaction. We live in a self-centered world. So selfishness rules the world around us. That's one of the reasons that we ought to be different. We're supposed to be like a light, a city set on a hill. We're supposed to be salt of the earth. We're not supposed to be like the rest of the world. The second reason, because selfishness opposes Christ who is in us. In chapter 1, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, he says, if, if there's any encouragement by your being in Christ, once you are saved, you are in Christ. Once you become a Christian, you repented of your sins, you believed, the Bible puts it this way, you are in Christ. And Christ is in you. In the book of Colossians, the Bible says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. So when we are selfish, what we are doing is we are living in a way contrary to Christ who dwells in us. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Jesus said of his own life purpose, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Christ in us is the perfect example and the portrait of a selfless life. If Jesus had been selfish, he'd said, oh no, I'm not taking the nails. I'm not taking that crown of thorns. I'm not taking the pain. I, don't, I didn't sin. I don't want the burden of their sin on me. But what Jesus did was to say, I'm going to lay aside my own comfort. I'm going to lay aside my own, my own even perfection. And I will take on the sins of the world. The Bible says that on the cross, he died for the sins of the world. That is selfless living. When we are selfish, we betray the Christ who is in us. Third, because selfishness hurts the family by you. Now, in this setting, we all understand that if one member of a family is selfish, that it hurts the rest of the family. And I'm looking at a bunch of families sitting in front of me right here in the center section. And we would all say, yeah, when, I, when somebody in our family is selfish, it hurts the rest of the family. But that's not the family that I'm really referring to. Paul is speaking to a church family here. He's talking to a group of Christians. And when you become a Christian, not only are you a part of God's great big family, but you should become part of a local family. You should commit your life to a local family of believers. And that's what happened here at Philippi. These believers all got together. They formed a church. But look at what Paul says of them. He says in verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He is speaking in this passage to this church family. And he says, when you are selfish, it hurts the family by you. Now, here's what I want you to do. Rather than, uh, rather than be selfish, I want you to think of others. In, in verse 1, he talked about the fellowship of the Spirit. 
that they would be one in the Spirit of God, that God's Spirit would bind their hearts together. And as God's Spirit does that, then they are of the same mind. It doesn't mean we all think alike because we don't. But it means we pursue the thoughts of God. And God's thoughts are found in God's Word. And he says, that's what I want you to pursue. He says, I want you not only to be of the same mind, but I want you to have the same love. It occurred to me this week that if we built a church based on likes, I mean, what you like and what I like, there would just be only, there would be a bunch of small churches. And I'm going to tell you why. Because you don't like what I like and I don't like what you like, but we don't build churches based on likes. We build churches based on love. By the way, that's probably why there's a church on a different corner in every part of the city, right? Because we're going to have what we like. But the church isn't to be based on like. It's to be based on love, love for one another. And love overlooks what you like if I don't like it because I love you. The third thing that he talks about in this passage, the third attribute, is that we should be maintaining the same love, united in spirit. But here's the one that got me. Intent on one purpose. One purpose. You know how different people who like different things, who come from different backgrounds, actually could be together and succeed? If they have the same goal, if they have the same purpose. You see, if we are all working toward the same, the same agenda, if we are all trying to accomplish the same thing, then, then we can be united and together. And I'm willing to sacrifice and I'm willing to serve because it's for the purpose now, when we come to church and it's all about what I like, it's about my personal preferences or about my personal comfort, then if I don't like the temperature in the room or the time we start to service or the music that we did or all that kind of stuff, then, then we're going to have all these divergent opinions and we're not going to be rowing the boat, we're going to be rocking the boat. Because if you're not rowing the boat, you're probably trying to rock the boat. And we're all supposed to be intent on one purpose here. And let me just clarify. What is the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is to make disciples. Period. End of story. Period. Full stop. We make disciples by leading people to faith in Jesus. We make disciples by developing them to be like Jesus. And then we deploy them in service to Jesus. That is what we are here to do. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And if... If we need to make sacrifices or if I need to serve so that more and more people come to faith in Jesus or more and more people learn more about Jesus or more people are served in the name of Jesus and his, God's love is spread, then that's what I need to be doing. But when I, when I make it all about what I want and my personal preferences and uh, my personal agenda, then what happens is selfishness has crept into the church. Not only do we live in the age of self, but we live in the age of the selfie, right? Nobody had ever heard that word until 2013. It was uh, Webster Dictionary's word of the year in 2013. It was uh, a big, the bigger age. Now, the reason for that was that we didn't have cameras on our phones until, you know, about 2011, 2012. And then we figured out how to reverse that and, you know, hold it out and make a selfie. Now, I'm not anti-selfie. I mean, I've been in Washington, D.C. and took, taking a selfie of the, you know, the Capitol Dome over my shoulder out on a morning jog and that kind of stuff. So I'm not anti-selfie. But sometimes it can go over the line. Let's just be honest. Did you know that there are 93 million selfies posted to social media every day? 
worldwide. 93 million selfies. Most of them are not selfies like with your best friend, selfies with some like historical monument behind you to say, hey, I was here. Most of them are close-ups. By the way, ladies, you're going to hate me for this. I get, I get hate mail for this one. 75% of all selfies are posted by females. But did you know? No, nah, I don't know that. Ain't, ain't right. That's not where you were supposed to say amen right there. That, that ain't right. But did you know that selfies, might, they might be narcissistic, but they're also dangerous? They're dangerous. From 2013 to today, more people have died from selfies than from shark attacks. It's true. People like they'll be on a mountaintop and they're going to take a selfie and they don't watch where they're standing and they fall and people have fallen to their death. People have been making a picture and you know how you're, when you're making a selfie, you're trying to get something in the background and they've backed into streets and been hit by cars. More people have died from selfies than shark attacks. I wonder if Discovery Channel is going to make like a selfie week. (laughs) Probably not. Wouldn't be that exciting. But when we become absorbed in ourself, it's actually spiritually dangerous too. And so what I want to challenge you to is understand that when we are selfish, we are not living a distinct life from the world around us. We are betraying the Christ within us and we are hurting the family around us. You say, okay, Bob, you've convinced me. I shouldn't be selfish. Kind of the point there. How do I do that? Well, let's talk about the marks of selfless living. The main point of this passage is verse 3. Verse 3 tells us, do nothing from selfish ambition, from selfishness or empty conceit. The Bible nowhere condemns ambition. And let me make a pointed statement to the seniors who lined up across the front. God created you with abilities. God created you with a personality. God created you with potential. And you honor God if you live up to that potential in its fullest way. If you develop yourself, if you study hard, and if you work hard, you honor your creator by by fulfilling the great potential he had for your life. That is a God-honoring ambition. But let's also be honest, too, that sometimes ambition can step across a line. And that line is, I want to be famous. I want to be known. Let me tell you something. For a Christian, it doesn't matter if anybody ever remembers my name. What, rem- what matters is that they know the name of Jesus. Maybe it's I want, to, I want to succeed and my ambition is to succeed so that I'm paid a lot of money so that I can have a lot of stuff. Just let me remind you of this. Not everything that comes to you is for you. You were meant to be generous and to pass it on. And so there's nothing wrong with ambition, but there is something terribly wrong with selfish ambition. And selfish ambition asks a question that I want to challenge everyone in this room and everyone listening to this to root out of your thought life. And here's here's the application. Stop asking what's in it for me. Stop asking what's in it for me. If that's your question, then you really don't understand the Christian life. You really don't. Because the Christian life is a life of serving 
and generosity and giving. The Christian life doesn't ask the question, what's in it for me? I was reading several Bible scholars this week who, that I trust and I, I read every week as I'm preparing my messages. And one of them made a statement that I'd never really thought of before. And here's what he said. He said, we are never more like the devil, never more like Satan, than when we are selfish and conceited. And here's what he, why he said that. Now, well, I kind of pushed back against it in my mind because I thought, well, wait a minute. They're a lot more like wicked, evil things in the world than selfishness and conceit. You know, I mean, I can think of some things that I think are a lot worse than that. But here's what he said. He said, if you look into the origin of Satan, let me help you with a little something. Satan is not a God. Satan is a created being. There is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is how he is revealed. But he created a being who fell, a being who rebelled against him, and that being is Satan. Satan is not the, the, there's not the good God and then the evil God, and Satan's the evil God. That's dualism. We don't believe in that. We believe there's one God. But Satan but was an angel, and he rebelled against the true God, and he fell. Here's what Isaiah says of that in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly and on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend to the top of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. I, I, I. Can you hear the selfishness in those words? I mean, all you have to do is read those words and you just hear the selfishness in them. And that is the origin of Satan. And after that, God cast him out of heaven. You are never more like the devil than when you are selfish. You are never more like Jesus than when you humbly serve. Never. Mom was making pancakes one morning. Her two boys, Kevin and Ryan, were sitting there, hungry boys, waiting for the first pancake. They started arguing about who's going to get the first pancake. Kevin said, I'm going to get the first pancake. I'm the older brother. I should have the first pancake. Ryan says, I'm going to get the first pancake. You got the first pancake yesterday. I deserve the first pancake. Mom had had enough. It's, all, it's just 730 in the morning, but she's had enough. And she says, boys, we went to church yesterday. And if Jesus were here, he would give his brother the first pancake. They sat there for a minute. Finally, Kevin looked over at Ryan. He said, Ryan, today you be Jesus. <laughs> That's the way a lot of us live. We want somebody else to be Jesus. Let me have my way while you be Jesus. Paul would say, don't ask what's in it for me. Second, don't believe the lies that pride tells you. Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit. Conceit. That word simply means cherishing exaggerated ideas of self-importance. It is Ron Burgundy. I'm kind of a big deal. Some of you got that reference. Some of you didn't. Here's the way Paul put it in Galatians 6.3. He said, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Pride is deceitful. And pride whispers to us, you're better than this. You shouldn't have to serve. You're better than this. Pride will always do that to you. 
You know, the Bible has a lot of things to say about pride. It says in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, pride only breeds quarrels. Pride is the reason many times that there, there are quarrels between people or between groups of people because we're prideful. Pride also is a precursor. It's a lead out to, to destruction. Listen to Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness. That's an old word we don't use much anymore, but haughtiness goes before a fall. There are two ways. I've always heard this. There are two ways to enter a room. Some people enter a room. Here I am. And some people enter a room. There you are. Making others feel good about themselves. Putting the focus and the spotlight on somebody else. Don't believe the lies that pride tells you. There's somebody who's worked harder than you, who's smarter than you, who's faster than you, who's better than you. Don't believe the lies that pride will tell you. Number three, cultivate the grace of humility. These words are worth just reading again. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. That is humility. Now understand this, we are all created equal. And Paul is not saying somebody else is spiritually superior to you. But what he's saying is, I want you to humble yourself and consider them as better than yourself. They did the great example of this. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he is set to go to the cross on the very next day. And that night he tells his disciples, he says, we need to celebrate the Passover meal together. It was the most important day on the Jewish calendar, the Passover meal. Celebrating how that a lamb had been slain and God had rescued his people from their slavery in Egypt. And the next day, he's gonna, Jesus is going to be the lamb of God who's going to take on the sins of the world. And he's going to be slain on a cross so that we can be set free from our bondage to sin and our slavery to Satan. And that night, when Jesus has, I think literally, the weight of the world on his shoulders... When the disciples came into the room, the Bible says that he put a towel around his waist and he got down on the knees in front of his disciples and he took the humblest position he could take. He washed their feet. He washed their feet. The Savior of the world washed these men's feet, and they didn't even fully understand what's going on around them. That is putting others ahead of self. And he's our example. Carl Jung was a psychologist, and a young man came to him on one occasion, and he said, I'm just so depressed. I'm just so depressed. And he asked the guy, he said, well, what, do you have a job? And he said, yeah, I have a great job. I make a lot of money. He says, what, do you have a family? I have a wonderful wife, great kids. And he just goes through this whole list of questions. And the guy's got this great life. But he says, I'm just so depressed. And Carl Jung said to him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go find somebody who's less fortunate than you and do something for them and make sure they could never repay you for it. And the young guy left. 
And Carl Jung said, either he was so revolted by what I told him that he just quit, never came back, or it worked. And I'm going to tell you this, it works. Because it is better to give than to receive. It is better to serve than to be served. There is a joy in that that you cannot give get any other way. Here's what Paul says. He says, I want you to humble yourself. To this class and to the rest of us, I want to tell you something. Pride will make God your enemy. And you say, Bob, you got a Bible verse for that? Actually, I do. 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed. He sets himself in battle array against the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Walk in humility. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And remember this. You are not the center of the universe. But I know who is. There's this scene in the book of the Revelation. And it says that in heaven there are myriads and myriads of people who gather around a throne. And then John, who wrote the Revelation, says, I looked and I saw in the center of the throne a lamb as if slain. I can tell you who the world revolves around. His name is Jesus. And he deserves the honor and the glory of your life. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning because some of us have been deceived. And it's an ancient deception or else it wouldn't have been written 2,000 years ago. That somehow everything ought to be about us. And it just shouldn't. Lord, I pray especially this morning for these graduates that you will bless their lives. But Lord, bless their lives to seek to honor you and to bring great glory to the name of Jesus. I pray for those in this room. Perhaps today you've spoken to them about living a life of service and that today is the day that they need to commit to that. For others, Lord, I pray that this would be a moment when they would trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. That this would be a day to make Jesus the Lord, the center of their lives, and that their life would revolve around him. Lord, we ask you to do a great work among us. In Jesus' name, amen.